0: Well, what is up, everybody? It is great to be here for Salt Company with you. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and start opening into Psalm 1. It's pretty much dead center of your Bible. So my name's Stephen Jones. I'm the salt director up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, uh, with Candeo Church. Go, Cats. You and I learned that. Didn't even know that you call panther cat, but that's what I've learned so far. Uh, But we actually, my family and I, Natalie is my wife, and we have two kids, Isla and Jack. We transitioned up there back in November, so we're still kind of new there. And every time you start a new job, you kind of wonder the same things. Like, what about my old job am I gonna miss? What about my new job am I gonna love? Is there gonna be any of like similarities between these things? And there's been a lot of you know various things of each, but one thing that is similar between Cornerstone and Candeo that I absolutely love, which you might think this is crazy, Uh, is a little thing we call staff workdays. So what staff workdays are, are once or twice a year, we take an entire day as a staff to deep clean the building, to do a bunch of lawn care, stuff like that, which maybe you know that sounds more exciting to some of you. For me, it's riveting, wild, great time, I love it. But there is a very important thing to the staff workday. It all hinges on one moment, and that moment is what role are you assigned? What role are you assigned for an entire day of work? So this May, I get an email, May 19th, Tuesday, workday, May 20th. Email says I'm on outdoor crew. That's good news. I go on Wednesday, we do some dynamic stretching as outdoor crew because that is very important in staying limber for outdoor crew. Don't wanna spread mulch and you know, pull a hammy or whatever. So I get outdoor crew, dynamic stretching, all that's happening, role assignment time. We circle up in this circle for role assignment. Now, my typical strategy to disguise my selfishness is to let the first role go first because that one's usually okay. And then the second or third is usually the best role. And that's when you say yes. But because it's second or third, you still look humble. And that is what we're all after, the perception of humility. So Cody Klein, one of the pastors at Candido, throws me for a curveball. He gives us the very best role right away. Right away, he brings up the best role for staff workday. He comes up, he says, all right, who wants to be on Power Washer? And I'm like, crap, if I go first, everyone's gonna think I'm selfish. Don't want that, but how do I get power washer? Because that's what I want, which you're thinking, why is that the best role? It's because I have toddlers. And there are two things that are constant in my life with toddlers, noise and messes. And power washing is the complete opposite of those two things. Power washing is alone in silence and just amazingly erasing the mistakes of this world in life through high power water. It's amazing, I love it. So Cody says the ball in the tee. He says, okay, who wants power washing? Who in fact has power washed before? I'm like, oh yes, me, I've power washed before. Woo, he says, okay, Steven, you got it. Uh, So I start power washing the front of Candeo. It is great, it is glorious, it's wonderful. It's not anything like checking markers in the nursery, which that is an awful job and that ruins your day. Just checking if markers are good in the nursery for hours and hours. Burn a vacation day as soon as you get assigned that. So I power wash and at this point, you know, Regardless, if I'm assigned marker duty or whatever, I'm happy. This has been a successful work day. So I go to Cody, finish up power washing, and say, Hey, what do you want me to do now? Now, I would have never imagined that there would be a job better than power washing, but there is. There is. And I didn't even think about it, couldn't have even imagined that my best staff work day would be at Candeo. But Cody just, you know, strikes gold with my heart and says, Stephen, is there any way you'd want to reseed portions of the lawn? Oh, yes! Okay, here's what happened. The week before, little did Cody know that I had spent a vacation week going deep in YouTube on lawn care. I spent at least six hours, which sounds terrible based on the sermon I'm about to preach about, you know, using your time wisely, things like that. Sounds terrible, but it's vacation, so whatever. I spent six hours, so when I heard you get to plant grass seed. I was like, Pandeo's the best, forget Cornerstone. I'm planting grass seed, let's go. So I get to the front of the lawn. There's like an area that has pretty good soil, pretty good grass, but some, several patches. So I rake it, uh, add some compost to it, put down the seed, which I think is perennial ryegrass. Someone scratched off the label. Um, but I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. Uh, then I put fertilizer, then I compact it because you want good seed to soil. You know, contact. Then I scan the rest of the lawn, like where else needs new grass seed. And way out, way out towards the back of the parking lot is this area. So I go, I think that area needs it. So I drive out there get out and look and scan. And I realized that this is the area that the snow removal company just dumps all of the snow throughout the winter in this one spot. So all winter, just tons of snow and all of the salt and sand and debris from the parking lot is just getting dumped in this one area. And so then when spring comes, all that's left and it's just horrible soil, horrible. And I'm like, what the heck, I'll still try. So I spread, go through the whole same process, leave the greatest workday of my life Come back five days later after it rained a bunch, to my not-surprisement, the grass in the front of the lawn was doing great. This is why I think it was perennial ryegrass, it germinated in five days. So we moved the flags out, it's ready to be mowed. Uh, Fescue and Kentucky bluegrass takes way longer, that's why. If you're in Florida, you don't know that because that's not the sort of grass you have, but that's what we Iowans think about constantly, all of us. That's the perception you need to have of Iowa. We care about corn and grass. So I go to the snow removal dump zone. Not shocked. No grass. Looks terrible. One like scraggly blade of grass is there. Why? The soil's bad. It didn't matter that we did fertilizer and sun and rain. All of that didn't matter. Where the grass was planted determined what happened to that grass. Where it was planted, if it was planted in good soil, it had a successful outcome. Bad soil, no outcome. Zero outcome. It died. That is all that mattered. Now, yes, there's some other things that you need to do to have healthy grass, but at the end of the day, the most important factor was where that grass was planted. And tonight, what I want us to see is just like grass, we humans, that is the same dynamic. Where you are planted determines who you become. Where you're planted determines who you become. If you're planted in a good place, good, bad, bad. That's where the Psalms is gonna open us up. In Psalm one, the very first Psalm, we're gonna see this, that where you're planted determines who you become. So that's it, and so with that, if that's true, therefore, then we need to figure out three things. Where are you planted? What are you becoming because of that? And how do you transplant if you don't like where you're at? Where are you planted? Who are you becoming? How do you transplant? Where you are planted determines who you become. So if you got Psalm one, open up there. That is all we're doing tonight. Here's how it starts. The book of Psalms, Songs to God, it says this, one, one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If where you're planted determines who you become, then we got to deal with this first question, where are you planted? And the psalm opens up by giving us two contrasting soils we could possibly be in. So the first one is in verse one. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This person is planted with the wicked. And look at this progression. It goes from walking. I'm just walking with the counsel of the wicked. Then it goes, I'm standing, just standing with the sinners. But then there's just this deep adoption of the way of thinking of the wicked when they sit in the seat of scoffers. What does it mean to be planted? It means that your entire way of thinking, your entire way of making decisions, the entire way you view your life is determined by where you're planted. For this person, it's determined by being planted with the wicked. Everything, the way they view their life is determined by this. Now, there's some obvious ways that this looks. Like, uh, there are thousands and thousands of people that are being deceived and following these voices that are leading them to obviously wicked things, like alcoholism, human trafficking, just atrocious things that we'd all agree. But then, for most of us, I think the way this looks is more subtle. If you're planted with the wicked, it's more subtle than that. And what we actually begin to see is that there are false narratives that the, from the second you're born are reinforced over and over and over again in your life that we subtly adopt, that we might walk with for a while, stand with for a while, but then eventually sit with. And they are, are wicked. They're the, they're, they're the voice of wicked. So what are these narratives? What are these false narratives? Well, just a handful. There's uh, the narrative achievement. You gotta achieve, You got if you wanna matter, you gotta be successful. There's the relationship narrative. If you wanna have acceptance and love, then you need romance and friendship. If you uh, want safety, then you follow the self-preservation narrative. If you gotta control your money and your finances and organize your life, then you'll be uh, preserved. You need health, those sorts of things. One in particular that I think all of us in this college stage of life feel is this experience narrative. Other words, FOMO, fear of missing out. The narrative goes like this. If you want to be joyful, if you want to be happy, then have amazing experiences, have the coolest spring break trips, have the best summer trips, go on study abroad, land the coolest job that you're proud to talk to your classmates at your five-year reunion, all those things. It's this experience. You want joy and happiness, have a unique lifestyle, experience life to its max. And these all these false narratives at first, it's like, wait, what is false about that? Like, what's so wicked? You'd say that's wicked? Like, why is that wicked? Well, what's wicked about it is not that it's identifying something that we want. We all want acceptance and love and we all need safety and, and joy and happiness. God wants us to have those. That's not, what, that's not what is wrong with these narratives. What's wrong with the narratives is where they're telling you to find it. Where, you're telling, where they are telling you to find those things. It's like this, if I brought in someone to my house who was starving, just like famished, and they say, man, can I get some food? I'm like, dude, you can have all the food you can find in my bedroom. Unless you're a weirdo, you don't have food in your bedroom. And there are some weirdos, so get the food out of your bedroom, and if you have a studio apartment, you gotta figure that crap out. There's no food in a bedroom. And imagine just sending this starving person up there. It's like up to my bedroom. I'm like, keep looking. And he's like, I can't find any and I'm starving. It's like, keep looking. It's there. And maybe every once in a while, he comes across a crumb and it encourages him enough to keep looking. But imagine the wickedness of me hour after hour after hour as he's crying out, I can't find food. And I just keep yelling, it's there. Find it. It's there. You're not looking hard enough. Keep looking. That's what's wicked about these. I so long for joy. I so long for happiness. And God created me to have joy and happiness. And this experience narrative is yelling at you, keep looking. But you're looking in a bedroom and not the kitchen. You're looking for joy in a place that was never meant to give you true and lasting eternal joy. That's what's wicked. And imagine after days of looking in the bedroom, the exhaustion that starving person would feel. And some of you have been sitting with these narratives are feeling pretty exhausted. Yeah, I've tried the acceptance, love thing in relationships, friendships, and I've been burned. And I keep hearing this voice that's saying it's there. It's there, you just gotta keep looking. And you're tired, you're exhausted. That's what's wicked about these. And some of you are hoping that college will maybe be actually the first time you can have an experience that leaves you with joy. But then you'll go on your first spring break trip, you'll go on your first study abroad, you'll land the job that you always dreamed of, and you're gonna be like, crap, I think that was a crumb. Because I'm still hungry. And I don't have joy. That's what's wicked about these. He compares that then to the true soil we should be planted in, which is the soil of the word. Not walking in the counsel of the wicked, not standing in the way of sinners, not sitting in the seat of scoffers, but delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. What this means is that the primary thing that is influencing the way you think the way you see, the way you understand the world and your life is God's word, is God's instruction. This is the thing that most influences the way you see everything. The narrative that's found in this scripture is the thing that just completely shapes your life. And there is a narrative. Unlike the false narratives of the world, there's a narrative that you begin to find as you delight in God's word and as you meditate on it day and night. And this narrative is that there is a God who out of love and joy created this world to share it. And he made us humans in his own image to bring him glory and to enjoy him forever. But we humans looked at God and looked at all the things in the created world and said, we want that, not you. Rejected him for that. And because of that, we stand guilty before him. We, we lost what was in the garden of Eden in the very beginning, the tree of life, because of our rejection of God. But God wasn't done with us. Out of his love, he pursued us. And John three sixteen says, "'For God so loved the world, the world that rejected him, "'that he gave his only begotten Son, "'that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, "'but have everlasting life.'" God came to restore a relationship with you, to bring you into a relationship with himself and into a relationship with an eternal family. And one day he's gonna restore the creative world back to the masterpiece it was that brings and exclaims his glory. And now we are in this time where we're waiting and being the people that God called us to be, walking in relationship with him. That's the narrative that's in the Bible. And is that the narrative that so shapes your life? and so shapes the way you understand everything about who you are. Do a soil test. If you're an agronomist, you know what that is. If you're not, it's just you do a test of the soil, CPH, stuff like that, learn that on YouTube. Do a soil test. What is the narrative that is most influencing your life? Because that will determine the outcome of your life. Where you're planted determines who you become. So who do you become? Look at verse three. He starts with the person planted in the word. He says, he's like a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and that yields its fruit in its season. It's leaf, it doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Because picture just the biggest tree you can think of. Just massive. I mean, think, picture yourself pushing up against it. Like it doesn't budge. It's just this sturdy, mature, life-giving uh, tree that's what the person who is planted in the word of God becomes. The one who meditates on it day and night, the one who delights in God's instruction, the one who's shaped by the narrative that is found in the Bible and lives according to it. That person becomes a tree. Now, there's an objection here as well. You're like, hey, Steve, I've done that whole Bible thing and it doesn't work. I've read it. I'm not feeling like a tree. Definitely not. What's up with that? Well, I think there's for sure more to Christianity and being a healthy Christian than just reading your Bible. There's there's more than that. But I think most of us dismiss the power of the Bible the same way that someone with a horrible diet dismisses exercise. It's like, "Yeah, I tried that whole exercise thing. Did it last month, 3 times a week for 5 minutes. Didn't do anything." It's like, "Well, no duh, idiot." You're drinking 12 packs of hee and glazed donuts. If you don't know what hee-haw is, it's an off-brand Mountain Dew, which I love. If I ever gave up on my body, that would be the things I ate all the time, hee-haw and glazed donuts. And no, I have not given up on my body, believe it or not. We dismiss the power of the word the same way someone with a horrible diet dismisses exercise. It's like, it takes time and there's no way five minutes of exercise could ever compensate for a lifetime of horrible diet decisions. It's like, there are so many voices that are influencing you to believe the false narratives. Your three times in the Bible for five minutes last week for one week consecutively is not going to compensate for the hours and hours and hours Hours of reinforcement that has happened on these false narratives. It's not. And a tree, before it looks good, it's got to be like 60. Learn that at Iowa State. It's going to take a lifetime of pursuing Jesus. But there's such a power in God's word to bring transformation as we delight in His word and meditate on it day and night. What's the outcome of being planted with the wicked? verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff. Chaff was the outer husk of a grain, a head of grain. And it's just this, this thing that you would would let the wind just blow away because it's worthless. It's dry. It's crusty. It's just this husk. It's like translucent. It's weightless. has no substance. And the wind can just you know, like even just like the wind from your hand going like that would like, same way the Bible like, you know, has really like, like you know, thin pages. It's like, it's thin, thinner than this, thinner than this page. And it's like, it just blows. Compare that to the power and, and prominence and beauty of a tree. That's the outcome. The starving person in the room, just day after day looking for food that he can't and won't ever find there. It produces a hollow, Life, if you live for money for the next 60 years, you might get money. In all honesty, you probably will get money. You could probably, if you wanna make a million bucks, you can do it. But if that's what you set your hope on, you're gonna be a, a husk, a piece of chaff with a million dollars. Great. And it's not just the pain in this life, not just the, the lack of meaning in this life, but it's also to the life to come. Look what he says in verse 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Being planted with the wicked doesn't just lead to a sad life here. It leads to eternal condemnation. Remember the narrative of the Bible. It's when we rejected God to go after that, it, Put us in a guilty place before him. And that guilty place deserves eternal condemnation. That's the outcome of being planted in the sand and the debris and the salt of the snow removal dump zone. That's the outcome. So, what do we do? How do we transplant? How do you get out of that if you don't like that? Well, two things. We need to recognize the things that are reinforcing the false narratives in our life and we need to start exercising. So clean up the diet, start exercising. Clean up the diet. What are the things that are reinforcing these false narratives? Is it your friend group? Is it social media? Is it the movies you're watching? There could be hundreds of things that reinforce these false narratives. What are they? Let's walk with wisdom on how to lessen their influence in our life. Let's start exercising. If you have never read the Bible, you should read the Bible. <laughs> it's that simple. Like you want to delight in God's instruction? Well, one of the best ways to do it is to actually read his instruction. So I think every Salt Company student should be able to graduate Salt Company and say, man, in the last four years, I read this Bible. That is such a doable like, goal. Four years, it takes take three minutes if you're a slow reader. Three minutes a day for four years. You could probably beat that. Every salt student should read the whole Bible. And if you're just starting out, do this. Set a timer for five minutes, read it, then think about what you read when the timer goes off, then pray about it. That's my daily rhythm. I read, I think about what I read, and then I pray about what I read. That simple, do that. But here's what we're gonna find pretty soon. I've heard enough sermons on the Bible and I've read the Bible enough times to know that what eventually happens is that the last three months happen and I feel like chaff and then something else happens where I recommit to being planted in the word and then I have these stupid things called legs and I run across the parking lot to the snow removal dump zone and plant myself right back with the wicked. It's like, crap, why why does that happen? Why does that happen? I wanna be planted in the word, but it doesn't happen. I don't want that outcome. How do I transplant truly? The problem that we're experiencing is that we don't just have an external problem with an external solution, right? Planted with the wicked, just plant yourself in the Word. It's not just an external problem with an external solution. There's actually a deeper problem. And it's not just that we are planted with the wicked, but that wickedness is planted in our hearts. And if you try to solve an internal problem with an external solution, you're gonna be just as frustrated as the starving guy in my bedroom. Just as demoralized. So what do we do? If there's wickedness planted in my heart, what do I do? Because God looked at humanity and saw the wickedness planted in our heart and the wickedness in our world. And the only way he could remove the wickedness in our heart is if he gave it to someone else. And this psalm actually points us to the one man in history who is actually the Psalm 1 tree. Who actually, in John 15, said, I'm the true vine, the true tree, and you are the branches. And, and so, again, in John 15, this, this true Psalm 1 tree said that I have followed my father's commandments and I've abided in his love. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that a seed from heaven would come who would be, give blessing to the nations. In Isaiah, he says that there is a root of Jesse that is gonna spring up to rule the nations and bring hope to the world. Because there's a true Psalm 1 tree that was the root of Jesse who sprung up for hope of the world and who was the promised seed, and that was Jesus. And he looked at a world plagued with chaff plagued with wickedness and he left this promised seed of heaven left heaven and planted himself on earth and grew to be this beautiful gorgeous tree just you look at his life in the gospels and there was so much beauty in it his compassion for the weak his love and tenderness his power and authority a beautiful life of just this amazing tree who delighted in his father's commands and delighted in the word Listen, the only way the wickedness in, that's planted in my heart could be removed was if that wickedness was put on the true Psalm 1 tree. And that tree was chopped and splintered and burned. Guys, Psalm 1.6 said that the, the wicked will perish. Jesus took what the wicked deserved, though he was the Psalm 1 tree, so that we don't perish but have life, so that the wickedness planted in my heart could be removed and re- be replaced with something else. Well, what? James one twenty one says that Jesus took the wickedness of our heart that was planted in our heart and replaced it with something else. And the thing he replaced it with was his word. James one twenty one says that humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can bring salvation. The word of his grace replaces the wickedness of our heart. And when you see that, you will be in a place to delight and love the word when you see the beautiful tree that was chopped and burned and splintered for you, you will actually be moved to a place where you no longer desire the, the snow removal dump zone, but actually desire the good soil of his word. When you can actually see the salvation and beauty of Jesus, it will lead us to love and delight in his scripture. To actually begin forming these habits where we daily in response to the word of grace that's in us, daily come back to the word that points us to that grace. And until you see the beauty of the Psalm 1 tree chopped for you, you will never have an internal solution to your internal problem. You will always have an external striving that can't take care of an internal problem. Uh, Last year, I was given a bunch of boxes of books. And in these boxes, uh, they were from two old pastors and I was going through them. And it was just all the books that they used to study and prepare sermons and stuff like that. And I came across one box and inside that box was just this big Bible. I mean, bigger than this one, just big Bible. And I just, I was so intrigued by it. I started going through it and inside it was just, it was crammed with notes. There were entire sermon manuscripts written in margins, coffee stains ever, everywhere. There's duct tape holding, binding together. It was just this, this symbol of this man's, commitment to know God through his word. It was this symbol of this man who had been touched by the word of grace that was planted in his heart, that removed the wickedness that was planted in there, that led him to love and adore Christ daily in his word. And on the front of this cover of the Bible, there was a name, and that name was Delmas. And I named my son after him, Jack Delmas Jones, because Delmas is my papa, my dad's dad. And Papa was a missionary and a pastor and in high school came to know the freedom that's in Jesus and saw him as the Psalm 1 tree who was chopped for us. And in that moment, when he was 14, the word of grace was planted in his, in his heart, replacing the, word, the, the wickedness that was there. And from that day on, he, he delighted in God's word. And this Bible was such a testament to his love of God and his hunger to meet with him in his word. My daughter, Isla, is also named after some grandparents. Her middle name's Ellen, and that's both Natalie's mom and my grandma, who represents my grandpa, my grandpa and grandma Graber. My grandpa Graber became a believer when he was 30. And from that day on, he would wake up at an ungodly hour at like three in the morning and just pour over scriptures. And then he'd go clean carpets because he was a janitor. And these two men, and, and Ellen and... and my grandma, these, these people are trees, oak trees for Jesus in my family who have left a legacy of faithfully walking with Jesus. And my hope is uh, that Isla and Jack will have a Bible one day that looks a lot like their grandparents. That represents a heart that was touched by the word of grace and then a lifetime of knowing God through the Bible. And I hope they can put that in a box and give that to their grandkids. And look, you might not have grandparents like that. I'm so blessed. But you can be a grandparent like that. And I, I, it doesn't matter how many people are watching, and I, I don't know if it's you know, 1,000, 2,000, whatever. But my hope is that on June 11th, that 60 years from now, we could look back and there'd be 2,000 Bibles put in boxes that are handed to their grandkids. Because tonight we all renewed our understanding of who Jesus is and the beauty he has as the Psalm 1 tree. And got serious about our Bibles. And got serious about knowing him through them. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to delight in your law. Help us to delight in your word because of the internal transformation that's happened in our life. I pray that we would be oak trees for Jesus. That the Salt Network would look across the the U.S. and across the globe in 60 years and see forest upon forest of oak trees for Jesus. Don't let us be chaff. Don't let us just be a pile of chaff that have great ambitions for you, but aren't planted in your word are just planted in another narrative. Amen.